Last Sunday, I made the scintillatingly deep observation that gravity exists. Perhaps at a slightly deeper level, I made the observation that it exists whether you like it or not. It's a fundamental reality that everybody deals with. Whether we recognize it, whether we notice it, whether we want it, it is. And that a five-year-old understands gravity pretty simply. And 50-year-olds are still trying to figure out exactly how it works so that they can do great things with it. Because it's a fundamental force. It, it, it is the environment in which we live. Throughout this series, we'll be making this point. The gospel, which is the fact that God is in the world reconciling people back to himself through Jesus Christ, is a fundamental reality. It exists. It is the environment in which we swim, whether we prefer it or refer to it or not. It's a fundamental core reality. And so because of that, I want to tell you up front, I I don't like hidden agendas. I really don't. If you have an agenda with me, I'd prefer you to tell me beforehand. I don't want to find it out later when somebody says, no, no, I just want to meet. Seriously, what's up? What do you want to meet about? No, no, there's nothing. And then I get there. What I want to talk to you about, see, you had an agenda. I have an, I have an agenda for this. Actually, I have two, and they're not hidden because I'm going to tell you them. This is my agenda, and it's my agenda for you. If you are not in faith, which means if you have not embraced the gospel, if it's something that has been peripheral to your life, if you've not come to a place of asking Jesus to forgive your sins and come into your life, my goal, my agenda for you is sometime in the next 12 weeks for that situation to change and for you to step into faith. Why? Because I believe it's what you were made for. And in that space of receiving Jesus Christ, you will find your um, soul will come alive in ways that are not possible outside of that. That's my agenda for you. And so I'll be referring to that throughout the entire series and giving you opportunities to consider it. One of the things I love about public speaking, which is what I tell my students when I teach it, is that I have an opportunity in public speaking when I'm talking to people, you will consider things that you wouldn't if we were one-on-one. I'm going to give you some spaces to consider things. The second agenda I have, for those of you who are in faith, this is my agenda for you. My agenda for you is that you would begin to live the gospel, and I would, I include myself in this category, that I would begin to live the gospel more deeply. That I would not live with a rudimentary understanding of the gospel. That it would go deeper into my life. That the fact that there is a God who loves me and died for me would have impact deeply in my life. And as I said last week, I think there's a tendency for all of us to skim, to skip over the deep portions of our life. And what I liked about this song is that it has that, it has that refrain, choke me in the shallow water before I get too deep. You know, I know what I am. I'm fine. Let's just move on. Let's not, let's not get too deeply engaged in this. And one of the tendencies we have in American Christianity or in America in general is, and if you have a notebook, it's really okay. This is not a critique of you. We tend to fill up notebooks. Now, I have notebooks too, and I write certain things in them, but we tend to fill up notebooks. In other words, this is my go through this whole series, and you fill up your notebook, and you got stuff in it, and then you get a new notebook, and you fill that up. And unless, unless the things that you are writing, you are taking and pausing and stopping and reflecting on the deep question, which is who am I? 
And how does a fundamental reality of a God and me intersecting, how does that change my life right here, right now? Well, then it's just information. It's just terrible because it's going to rhyme. We're going for transformation, not information. But we are. We're going for depth. We're shooting below the surface. And so I will press you at points in this series to stop and to look hard at things for the goal of each one of us going far further in our current place of growth and maturity than we have to date. And really, why else would we be talking? You can get superficial nuggets everywhere. I could give you them. Let's try to take it farther. There's a, a fundamental reality that's in the core of Christian teaching, which is that humanity, you and I, are beauty and broken. That we're not pretty good, that we're not sort of good, that we're not sort of bad. We are beauty and broken. And why this is important is because, and this is the cliff notes of today's message, because of who you are, because at core you are a creature of stunning nobility and design, that you will always seek to know what your value is. Because it's there. And in our brokenness, if we do not find it in the right place, we will find illegitimate means to fill the legitimate need of understanding our value. And so today we're going to walk through, I'm going to paint a picture to you, a brief picture of who you really are in your beauty and in your glory, and then how that can get detoured, the broken detour of comparative living. Okay, I'm going to look at a passage with you briefly in Psalm chapter 8, and... uh, Why am I clicking this pen? No idea. Just, you know, just am. Psalm chapter 8. The Psalms are a collection of worship songs, really, that were written in ancient Israel by a bunch of people, but the the dominant force in the Psalms was a guy named David, who was uh, a king of Israel, but who also had a, a glorious and a checkered past, which makes him, in my opinion, particularly fitting to write these psalms. Anyway, we're going to look at Psalm 8, and it's going to sort of fall out in three parts. And here's the, the first part. goes like this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Most, oh no, that's really terrible. That's, that will sound like, it will sound very judgmental. But anyway, many, some, occasionally, there are songs, worship songs, sung in churches. That's all they sing. O Lord, how majestic is your name. And it's like, God is great. Well, okay, look, God is magnificent. A stunning level of beauty. And and this psalmist starts out saying, God, you're so majestic. I mean, the, the level of complexity in our universe and the level of beauty that I see and the level of personality and poignancy, it's, it, it leads me to see that you are a God of stunning creativity and beauty. Many worship songs stop right there. And we sing and cheer and walk out relatively flat. David asks a deeper question. See, he stops. He stops in that point. God is great and God is beautiful. He stops in that point and he says this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what's man that you were mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. I like that this is in a worship song because essentially what he does is, oh, wait a minute. God, if I really reflect upon how great you are, if I even consider the things that you've made, 
I mean, what am I? And it seems to me he's almost caught up short with a stunning sense of insignificance. And, and why I like it in a worship song, because to me it's like, you know, you know, big organ or big drums or God, I'm majestic is your name. And then he goes like, oh, crap, wait a minute. If th- that's what's in the Hebrew. If this is true, <laughs> if this is true, if I actually don't skim over that, oh, God, you're so great. If I don't skim over that, if I actually pause on that, then I have to go, if that's who you are, then how insignificant am I? Even if I just think about the things you've made, my comparison to me puts me in this place of being so paltry and meaningless. If I think about myself, I'm one of seven billion on a planet. And it's just one planet in one solar system, in one galaxy. When you start spanning it out, my insignificance grows by leaps and bounds. And so David stops and he says, I, I got to be honest with you. I can talk about how great God is, is, but truthfully, that backs me into a corner where I wonder, what am I worth at all? Because you and I see things in comparisons and we don't measure up all that well. Takes it a third level. And he says this, ah, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. See, David knows a couple of things. One, he knows God. And two, he knows the Bible. He knows what God has said. And so as he's reflecting through this, he's saying, oh, I mean, how do I even find a level of significance? Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. You fashioned us with glory and honor. You made us rulers over the very things that you made. You see, at core, your identity is that you were made in God's image. Not a random collection of biochemical processes. You were made in God's image intentionally. And so the beauty that we see, we are a reflection of that. The glory that we see, we are a reflection of that. The truth, the justice, the mercy, we are a reflection of that. Made, designed to be like that. Which makes me think as I go through my life and I think of who I try to be that I've set my sights awfully low. I've set the standard at a pretty paltry level. Because, see, this is really what happens for most of us. And let me say, I hate to put everybody in there, but this is what happens for all of us. At some level, what we do is we have a deep sense that we are made as creatures of value. And because of our disconnection from God, because we are fundamentally broken, we miss that. It feels too distant. It doesn't ring true in our life. And so we begin the broken detour of trying to find value for ourselves because it's a legitimate need. We find another way to get it. And we have two primary ways in order to validate ourselves through comparative living. Because you see, if I have to feel good of myself, if, if I have to find meaning for my life, I'm using you as my standard. Because then I can look around and say, ah, okay, I must be worth something because I'm better than you or equally good, you're worse than me. See, I can go either way. I was reading a book 
Uh, I have a, a book club. It's three three guys and I. We meet together, and none of them are at warehouse. They're just good friends of mine, and we 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 talk about whatever book. And this last book somebody suggested was called Season of Life, and it, uh, you know, for me, it was not it was not. A, and we all acknowledge this. It was written probably at an eighth grade level. It was trying to reach kids. I think it's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and he's writing a men- memoir of a former NFL player. But there were some real nuggets in the midst of it. And, and one of the nuggets was this. The guy was talking about, okay, you know, for boys, just for boys, and girls, you can fill in your own thing here. For boys, how do we find meaning in our life? At an early age, we discover there are places where we can validate ourselves. At the youngest age, it's at athleticism. Boys can find validation or lack thereof, and we'll get to that in a few moments, through athletics. If somehow we've determined if I'm fast and I'm strong and I have good eye-hand coordination or if it's soccer, good, you know, hand um, I foot coordination, then I can be validated, then I'm something, you know? I can be, and, and this is not true certainly of any of us, we can be dumb as a stump. However, if we can run fast, then we're valuable. We've set that before ourselves. Young boys find validity through their athletic conquests, and then it shifts, and it shifts somewhere around puberty where we find a new level of conquest. We can validate ourselves through the girls that we date or spend time with or have activity with. And we can validate that either through quality or quantity. She can either be the best looking or I can have the most of them. And this phase of the boy's life ends when they're about 75. (laughs) But the older you get, the more you're remembering... (laughs) What a stud you are. (laughs) But then at some level at adulthood, we start to think, okay, maybe that's not it. And so we begin to validate ourselves through our stuff, through our money. I have more than you do. And we look around and we either find our worth or not through what we have and through what we make and through what our power is and what our position is. This is one way in which we try to find meaning in our life. We compare myself to others by raising myself higher than you. But then we have this sense that, and you've all felt it, it just doesn't work. There's not enough. I mean, Wilt Chamberlain is supposed to have slept with 20,000 women and doesn't appear to have found his sense of worth yet. There's not enough. We get this real sense that all this struggle I've done has not given me what I actually wanted. So we have another methodology. If raising myself up doesn't work, I can always do this. Let's say I can't be athletic or good-looking or make lots of money. Well, then I can always knock you down a peg. Because, see, I just have to be better than you. If I can't climb above you, I just need to knock the legs out from under you. A whole other strategy. It can be done subtly or it can be done right in your face. It can really just be just a comment as I make everyone aware of your failings. I can develop very manipulative and underhanded uh, tactics for discussions that bring you down a peg. And somehow then I believe, okay, now I'm something. I'm worthwhile. Why? Because you're worse than me. See, I can be better than you or you can be worse than me. can go either way. Yeah, it just doesn't work, does it? I mean, seriously, have any of us ever written down on the piece of paper, here's I'm going to have value for my life. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make fun of other people. I'm going to make 
them feel bad about themselves. I'm going to bring up their weaknesses, and this will make me a valuable person. Who's going to write that down? That sounds stupid. Who would ever write down a piece of paper as their goal in life? I know how I feel as a valuable human being. I will find a really pretty girl or a really pretty guy. And I'll spend time with it. And this will make me worthwhile. I know I'll make more money than someone else does. doesn't matter what I do or who I step on. If I make more money, well, then I'm valuable. Who would ever write that down and actually believe that? But we live it. See, that's the, that's the crazy thing. We live our lives doing things that if we ever articulated them, we would dispense with them in a moment. How in the world is that going to give me a sense of value and meaning? But we live it. Why? Because we long for meaning, we long for value, we long to know our worth, and we don't have it. And so we take the broken detour of comparative living. Okay, here's the crux. Here is the thing. How do we escape that? See, this is not how you escape it. I believe in Jesus. And so I don't have to compare myself to other people. And then I roll on through my life comparing myself to other people. Something has to happen. One is I must embrace two things that are true and then begin to take them deeply into my life. These are the two things that are true. You see, in, in the gospel, and I'll explain that again in just a moment, in the gospel, you have a stable nobility. What that means is you have a beauty that's quite beyond what you can achieve on your own, but it's actually stable. It's not fluctuating. It's not variable. It doesn't go up or down like the stock market. Stock market. My stable nobility is found in two things. It's first found in the fact that I acknowledge who I am and my brokenness and I'm accepted by God. You see, the mechanics of the gospel are this. Human beings like you and I have wandered away from God and this has caused us to be separated from him in a way that we can't inch our way back. And he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, to pay for it all, to forgive everything, everything. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. What this means and taken down to our own personal level is, what God says is, if you receive Jesus, I forgive you, knowing exactly what you're like. You don't have to hide your brokenness anymore. You don't have to knock them down a peg because you're actually not being compared to them. You don't have to try to get over the top of somebody else because you're not compared to them. I see you and I forgive you. This is one half of our stable nobility and it's critically important. I really spent my entire college career positioning myself, positioning myself to make sure I didn't talk to the people I wasn't supposed to talk to. I ignored those who were below me. I embraced those that would raise me up. I sneered at who I need to sneer at. I gave a head nod to who I needed to give a head nod at. 
I carefully positioned what I did and who knew about it and denied anything that would lower my value in the eyes of someone else. And then I became a Christian. And it wasn't becoming a Christian and after that something changed. It was the process. It was the moment. It was this stunning moment when I realized what God is offering me. It was almost like this. Let me get this straight because this is counterintuitive for me. Let me get this straight. What you're saying to me, God, is that you are loving me and accepting me after you know all the stuff. See, what I'd heard was that what Christianity was is a place that you, if you were good enough, you could get in. I mean, that's certainly what the churches appeared to be telling me. Clean your act up. Smile. Sing, oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. Don't think too deeply. Lord, no, don't do that. Be a pretty good person. Give a nice external view to everybody else. And then hide, duck and weave, avoid the real stuff. And so I thought, really? This is what I'm getting? What I'm actually getting is you're saying, no, no, no ducking and weaving. I, I, you know, I'm, I see everything. I know it all. I know everything you've done. I know what's coming down the pike, which you're not even aware of. And seeing all that, I love you and I came for you and I offer you forgiveness. Full pardon. And a relationship with me that you can never lose. This is the core of Christianity. This, if you are outside of faith, is what God offers to you. Not a self-improvement plan. That is one half of a stable nobility. The other half is this. So, in my brokenness, when I actually look at it, when I don't skid past it, that's where I'm forgiven. But the other half of it is, God calls me a beauty. That there actually is a standard, but it's a standard that I don't have to achieve on my own. It's the standard that's already there and has nothing to do with you. Nothing. Talk about counterintuitive. Your value and your worth has nothing to do with those who sit around you. Because who you were called to be is a child of God made in his image, intentionally designed to reflect him. It actually can happen. It's not outside of your grasp because it's actually who you are. We've set our sights too low. Here I've spent all this time trying to be better than you when the truth is it's not even part of the equation. I'm called to be who God made me to be and who that is, if I actually saw it in its fullness, would be striking and perhaps a little bit intimidating. That's who you are. So what are you going to do with that? Other than fill your notebook. Seriously. I mean, this is the point where these, just so you know, like you care, this is the hardest point about speaking to y'all every week is right here. It's really easy just to skip and go, okay, so I've told you some good truths and you might even actually think about it. Here's my, because I know you want to know this. Here's my great fear. I get to the end of my life and God is sort of interviewing you about what you have gained from the things I have said. And it would go something like this. I was recently rated. There's a rating service online. Rate your professor. 
in one of the ratings, this is what it said. Uh, he rated me highly, or she, I don't know, rated me highly, but this is what it said. I got to be honest, I didn't actually learn anything, but he was really entertaining, and so you ought to take the class. Really hoping nobody in the administration saw that. <laughs> hey, learn nothing, but they sure had fun. That's my great fear, is that not just the end of my life, at the end of this series, you'd go, that was kind of, inter- that was kind of fun. That was not a waste of an hour or so of time. Yeah, good music, good coffee, semi-interesting comments. This is the crux at this point in the message where, okay, what are we going to do with this? Other than go, that's an interesting thought. How will I take the reality that I've been offered a gospel that accepts me as who I am and presents a picture of me that's real, that's far beyond any comparison? How will that actually, knowing that, break me out of comparative living? This is how. In um, your day-to-day life, you will compare yourself to other people. It will simply happen. I will look at Jason and I will feel less good about my biceps. I'll look at Richard play that really cool guitar solo and think, I'm just not very talented. Now, I may look at other people and feel great about myself. And you may look at me and feel great about yourself. Hey, you've got hair, right? <laughs> you and me, bud. We're, you know. This is where the failure to have the gospel go deep, goes deeply happen. I look at Jason or I look at Chris. Or I look at somebody else and I say, oh boy, I probably shouldn't do that. This is the death knell of your life, people. I probably shouldn't have done that. I probably shouldn't have done that either. Oh, I should probably do this. We probably should ourselves to death. It doesn't go anywhere. Here is where the gospel takes hold, is when you take that one thing, that moment in your life where you are acting in a way that seems really, if you broke it down, silly, and then you expose it. And you say to God, okay, God, right here. Here is the problem. I choose not to skip past this moment, and I'm asking you to meet me right here, and show me why it is that I'm acting this way with this person. Now, this is hard work. Seriously. It's, my, it's why we tend to skip things over, because this is hard work, to actually take the point of brokenness and bring it before God and ask Him to meet you there. I would like God to meet me in the superficial areas of my life. That'd be great. And the little tiny things that don't take a lot of work, but I'm convinced that real change happens at the point where we're actually broken. It is the place that we're marred that we get remade. And so the key to taking the gospel deeper into our life is actually sitting on the moments of our life where we realize the brokenness is showing. And rather than doing what is the natural thing, which is to skirt past it, I actually stay in it. How can I stay in it? Because I'm not on the line anymore. I've already been forgiven. I don't have to be valued by anybody else. I can sit before a God who's fully accepted me and say, here it is, it's uglier than I thought. Could you remake me here? Over 2,000 years ago, Socrates said, a life unexamined, 
is not worth living. Can I say, apparently then too often my life's not worth living? Because I'm not examining. I'm getting some new information. Three years ago, I was struck with the thought I wanted to reject. And God used a series of events to make me sit in that moment for three years. And there was growth. Ah, but in three years, think of how many new pieces of information I could have gotten. The goal of your life, that sounds terrible. I think what God is trying to do in your life is to bring you to the maturity of who you're supposed to be. And the only way you get there is the harder path of sitting in the places of brokenness, knowing you can, you can afford to, because you're okay there. You've been accepted. And knowing you can, because it's not the place you must remain. See, the real terror of comparative living is it is a constant battle to not fall back below. Here I have a place of stable nobility. I'm fully accepted and called to something that God is taking me toward. And so I sit in the place where God is trying to get my attention. And I ask him as I pray, as I read the Bible, as I'm in community, as I talk to others, I ask him to speak to me there. If you are, it's, it's Lent, by the way. Sometimes we take a real focus on that, and this time we didn't, didn't quite so much, although this series follows through it. And Lent, you know, for a lot of people what that means is, and it may for you, you give something up. And uh, for those of you who know this little girl, it'll resonate immediately. The Teague's little girl, Taddy, she was talking about, we, they, they need to write a whole book of things that she said. But one of the things was somebody was talking about what she could, she was wanting to give something up for Lent. And that person said, well, how about chocolate? She goes, no, I like that too much. I couldn't give that up. And so she's trying to find things to give up that don't really cost too much. Well, that's pretty understandable. But what we do sometimes, we go, I'm going to give up something I really love. Well, why? Seriously, let's think about this one. Why are you giving it up? What happens? Let's say I give up chocolate for 40 days. Why? This is a place of religious ritual without power. Now, I can make this powerful. Why? The whole point of the giving things up comes from the concept of the early church's Lenten fast, which was a 40-day adventure of focus. The point of giving up chocolate is so every time I want chocolate, what I bring back before my mind is that thing that I'm asking God to change about me. It's not so I give up chocolate. I mean, really, chocolate's just a food. You give up the thing so that every time you want it, you have in place of that where you want God to change you. This is the importance of fasting. This is what fasting is about. Fasting is not a spiritual discipline where I drag around because look what I've done. I've sacrificed for God. Maybe he'll be pleased with me now. Sacrifice is I walk into a period of time where there is a thing that I'm asking God to meet me about. And so I give up food for a certain period of time so that every time I'm hungry, the thing that I'm doing it for gets in focus. This is how spiritual transformation happens. At the very place where comparative living shows up, we say, this God is where I want you to reach me. 
We take the thing, we put it in the background, we leave it in the forefront, forefront, and we actually ask God to engage us there. And then what happens is, we start to see that fall. The foolishness of it begins to fade away. The power of a greater truth begins to take over. The one other thing I'd like you to consider today is this. Today, if you are not in faith, it's important to recognize that. See, we're still in the Bible belt. We might be in the buckle. And the buckle of the Bible belt, we're not supposed to say we're not Christians. That's falling a little bit. But because we've said Christians are good people, well, clearly you're a good person, right? So you have to be a Christian. If you're not in faith, an important step for you is to go, I'm not in faith. Jesus is a, I don't know, I don't don't really know what the whole point was. Died for me, don't really get it. If you're not in faith, step one is to go, I'm not in faith, I'm not. But then to ask this question, God, if this is true, would you show me the reality of a love that has that is for me, that recognizes me for who I am, and offers me a relationship I can't lose? And if this is true, would you help me to walk into that? Today it may have come true for you. Today you may have had that moment where you thought, wow, okay, yeah, I have been living my whole life trying to be better than somebody else, or then be worse than me. I want to know the acceptance of a God who sees me, who loves me, and who died for me and offers me life. I want it. If that's where you are today, don't wait. I'm a, I'm a chronic procrastinator. I wait on everything. Why can't it be put off till tomorrow? What possibly needs to have it done today? In doing that, we lose a lot. We lose a lot. And one of the things we lose is we lose the moment. And if in this moment God is speaking to you and calling you into relationship, don't, don't let it slip by. You gain nothing by doing that. By stepping into it, you gain everything. You gain a relationship with God that will change your life fundamentally, meaning you have the basic, most primal needs of your life. And if that's where you are today, what I'm encouraging you to do, at the end of the service, come on up and talk to one of us or jot a note down on one of the connecting cards and drop it in the offering basket or in the boxes on the way out. I'm going to pray for us for a moment and then we're going to walk into our time of worship. And as I do so, I'm I'm, I'm going to pray specifically that whatever has happened for you in the midst of this, that God will keep it forefront and center and that you will both gain the joy of realizing who you're made to be and the forgiveness and the acceptance that allows you to wade into what's not quite there yet. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take us people who, I pray you'd make us honest today with ourselves. And that would be a big step for most of us is to face ourselves honestly and then to bring that before you. And I pray that the time we have here of engaging in worship, I pray that that's what will happen. That good questions will be asked. That your voice will be heard. That we can engage you fully from the heart, not from the edges of our being. And I pray for each one who today in this moment contemplates whether this is the day that they want to walk into faith with you. That you would reach them and show them That it's not true for generic people. It's not true for people that are better than them. It's true for them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As the offering baskets come around, if you've jotted something down in the card, maybe you're new here or 
perhaps there's a question you have or perhaps you want to engage somebody in a conversation about the gospel, you can just drop it in the offering basket as it comes around. This leads our, our, our worship time. It's a